Welcome to episode one of the Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast. In this podcast, we will be asking estate planning and business succession questions of some of North America's top thought leaders, authors, lawyers, family office leaders, business owners and entrepreneurs, tax advisors, investment professionals, insurance specialists, and family business consultants. Every episode, we will contemplate a specific question you might have about estate planning and or business succession. Our guests will discuss their perspectives on the question of the week and offer their unique wisdom and insights on how to address the situation. The organizing question this week is, what if I own a family business in this difficult time? Today's very special guest is Dr. Tom Deans. Tom is the author of the best-selling family business book, Every Family's Business, and the estate planning book, Willing Wisdom. In our wide-ranging interview, Tom will deal with questions about adopting a proactive process in planning, explain how silence is the great destroyer of family businesses, his belief that estate planning is about the living, and even Schumpeter's concept of creative destruction. Okay, welcome to the Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast. I am extremely delighted today to have as our inaugural and uh, very special guest, uh, Dr. Tom Deans. Uh, Tom is the author of two very important books. If you haven't read them, and we're going to talk about the one in particular, which is Every Family's Business. This is the, uh, the all-time number one best-selling family business book. It is at least in its third edition. Um, and we're also probably going to cross over into Tom's second book, which is Willing Wisdom. And uh, the subtitle on that book is Seven Questions Successful Families Ask. Tom, welcome to the show. Chris, great to join you. Um, one of the things, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on as a special guest is that uh, I, I've had the pleasure, the the the, the uh, privilege, I would say, of knowing you uh, for seven or eight years now, and I've read both of your books. I've seen you speak quite a few times, and I think that the message, in particular, the message with every family's business, which is what we're going to talk about today, as the show is being recorded, we're sort of in the early stages of. North American economies opening up uh, uh, in the COVID-19 pandemic that has uh, beleaguered our, our world. And, and I think there's probably no better time to speak about the topic of business transition and family business. Um, and so I thought that we would, we would take some time in this, this uh, episode to talk about uh, answering the question, what if I own a family business in this difficult time? Um, and I'd like to make sure that my my listeners understand where you're coming from and what your experience was that brought you into this space. And you have a really interesting story that you tell. Um, you have the the benefit uh, of, of not being a lawyer, not being an accountant. You have a very interesting uh, perspective that I think really brings a lot of value to listeners. I think that's why you're such a popular speaker and why your books have been so popular. Can you share with uh, our listeners how you got into this space, a little bit of the backstory, and in particular, with respect to every family's business? Well, 
You know, it's a it's a very um, it's a very unusual story. It's a very unusual trajectory for for someone to become a full time speaker after having a career in banking and running a, a large family business and then selling the family business. I mean, if someone told me that I would I would be a, a full time professional speaker, and it's always good to remind the listeners, I am I am not a consultant. So if you're if you find something in the next hour interesting or compelling, please don't call me. That's that is not what I do. I mean people like you are really great at engaging people and going deep and and I mean it's amazing work and I and I really value I mean the skills of those people, but that is not me. I um I I'm really a thought leader and I'm really what the French would describe as a provocateur. Uh, I what I'm really because I'm not consulting I'm really freed up to share out what I would describe, I think, pretty clearly and accurately as an incredibly biased message. I mean, I am not about giving two-handed speeches where I say, on the one hand, you can do this. On the other hand, you can do that. I, I, I really firmly believe that what helped our family through our business transition, what helped my grandfather through his and my great-grandfather through his, was... Um, uh, was a, a set of values and a perspective and a bias that they shared. And, and so I wrote that story and it's, uh, it's just, it's just a very different message. You know, when I was sitting in the corner office running our, our manufacturing company, um, I, I was a voracious reader of family business books. I mean, I read them all and, and I can't think of any of them that didn't really come at the subject from the perspective that the goal of a family business is to, fix itself so that it continues on in perpetuity. And in fact, if you don't, that somehow you're, you somehow failed or you've let someone down or the legacy has died or I don't know, but there was always that kind of underlying message that it is the job to perpetuate the business. And I, and I have to tell you that if you know a little bit about my story, uh, going right back to the you know, 1920s and hotels and chemical manufacturing in the 50s and plastics in the 70s, the business that I took over and ran, uh, we've, we've just always started businesses, growing them, involved our family, but in, we've never gifted our businesses to our kids. We just simply don't. We, we ask them to risk their capital to purchase the business. And in some cases, we started down that road. I was buying my father's business. But, but never really got to control. We, we sold to a third party. So I thought, Chris, you know what? I'm, I'm going to write that book. I, I, just, I just think that there's another way of defining family business success other than um, the way that we've traditionally done so, which is, as I said, just perpetuate. So I wrote that book. I wrote that book. It was uh, released in uh, early 2009. And that little book found a place. I just think there was... I think especially the time was right after the great capital crisis, uh, the, the great recession, 2008, 2009. It was just, there were business owners that were just traumatized by what was going on. And fast forward to 2020, <laughs> we're finding ourselves equally, if not more traumatized, business owners that is. Um, and I just think, and, and it's funny because I'm seeing a resurgence in book sales again. Um, so I, it, so it's a very different message. It is a contrarian message. I accept that. And it offers 12 questions for business owners to ask themselves and their family to really explore whether or not there's a buyer in the building. Is there a buyer in the house? Is there a family member who wants to risk their capital to buy that family business? Yes or no. And I'm really agnostic. I, I love it when there is. I'm, in, I'm indifferent if there isn't. I, for me, it is there is just one unassailable truth that has carried me 
to 26 countries sharing this message over a thousand paid speeches. And that is this, when we take shortcuts with the transition of our business and we deny the next generation the important step of risking their capital, we deny them. We actually steal something authentic from themselves and we actually destroy their confidence in the future. And so it is crucial that business owners, especially now, and I suspect that we'll tuck into this in more detail, crucial that business owners right now, if they've got family members in the business or are expecting them to join, that they really sit up and pay attention to this message because man oh man, business owners today are learning just how fragile their balance sheets are and how dangerous it is to concentrate your wealth in one operating business, making assumptions that your kids love your business as much as you. It's a, it's a tricky subject. And, and you mentioned some of the, the values that in, in biases that your family uh, uh, brought to this particular, this particular emotion laden topic. Um, what, what are, and, and in fact, uh, uh, on the, the, the book cover it, itself, John Ward, who is uh, a very respected member of uh, the family business uh, consulting world, uh, described your book, uh, at least in part, as a, representing some proactive philosophies of wealth, family, and human nature. Can, can you tell us a little bit about what those philosophies are, some of those philosophies are that are revealed in the book, and why they're maybe a bit contrarian? Well, you know, I've done a lot of interviews, but I've never been asked that question because it's, it's, it's a really interesting question. I, I think at the core is this really deep, deep commitment to entrepreneurship. And despite the fact that we've had some significant family businesses, one that was publicly traded, um, we, we just, I think it's so imbued in our DNA that that next generation it just has to just grind and work it through and become authentic and have the confidence in their own abilities. And the only way to do that is to struggle. And it feel, <laughs> that may feel a little bizarre and cruel <laughs> because the temptation we all know when you, particularly if you have surplus capital, you're a successful founder, you know, the last thing you want to feel like you want to do is put your kids through the ringer. Um, in fact, that's exactly what we do. <laughs> we're tough on our kids. But, and it sounds like we're denying them something. Like we're not, you know, you're not going to get a free family business, you know? So you got to right. work. But, but if you read the book, really what we do is we actually transition capital to our children. In fact, when the next generation are in my audience, when I have a mother and daughter or father and son or whatever combination of family, two generations in my audience, when they start to hear my message, that you can just see the next generation going, oh my God, who invited this idiot? I mean, this is a brutal message. I just, I just thought I just got to hang around the family business long enough and I get it for free. But then when they really listen to the full message, which is we don't gift operating businesses, we gift cash. We gift cash to our children. And we don't do it all at the end when we're dead and we're not here to see how they deploy it. We actually make living gifts. We actually make living gifts and provide coaching and feedback and we give access to our personal and professional networks to the next generation, but also with the instruction that it's their job to find that thing that they're really passionate about and really good at. And usually the thing that you're passionate at, you're good at. And so I think as much as we are committed 
profoundly committed to the notion of entrepreneurship, there is also something in us, I feel, that, and I think it's a little bit rare. We do not, we have never, I have, I never remembered my grandfather talking about his business as some kind of legacy, as some kind of, uh, kind of historical monument to his genius. In fact, we, we've, I think we've, I always heard conversations about creative destruction, this idea, it's philosophical, this idea that really nothing lasts. And it's the entrepreneur's job, not only to know when the right time it is to start a business, but actually when it's the right time to get out. I mean, if you look at the really great dynastic families, they seem to have that intuitive knack for both. And so they kind of understand that every business has a shelf life. And, and so by asking the next generation if they want to risk their capital, really that next generation is really looking at that business with really clear eyes and clear intellect, not with starry eyes of legacy saying, you know, two generations before me were shoemakers and I'm going to be a shoemaker. And even my unborn children will be shoemakers. Like that is the antithesis of our thinking and of our family culture. Our family about what we have and how we got it. There's a lot of storytelling, backward looking storytelling about how businesses were started and how they almost failed and how they hung in there and pivoted and, and, and re repaired the balance sheet and then ultimately sold like those stories are like legendary. And there, there was, and there was also no mourning, no obituary in our family meetings about the sale of a business. It didn't kind of represent this kind of, Oh my gosh, who are we now? We, we sold that chemical manufacturing business. I mean, boy, uh, you know, we're having this existential crisis. I mean, that's, it was kind of like, that was the goal. It's like to monetize it, to build it, scale it, monetize it. So it's just, I don't know why it's, it's so weird. Cause I, I share this story and I can see these founders in my audience with, they just look so sad when I'm, when I'm telling them this story, right? They, they just look so sad. And I'm like, we, we, we write our own, we write our own narrative. We write our own story. And, and then when I start to get into the, the, the keynote in more detail and start sharing some of the statistics about just how temporary and frail businesses are and, and how few last a hundred years, like only 16, according to fortune, uh, of the 16, uh, the 100 largest firms in America in the year 19, 1900, only 16 were in business a hundred years later. Like that's a devastating failure rate of not just a hundred random firms, but the 100 largest firms, best capitalized, managed, branded, whatever, gone. Like no one wants to talk about it. Everyone is out there peddling the perpetuity model. And so I'll tell you why the book sold 1.3 million copies and continues to sell well is because it has no competition. Literally no one wrote a book about how to end a family business uh, with everyone congratulating themselves in the family about how smart they are. Like it's the opposite. <laughs> right. And I, so I just think, you know, when you look at the statistics, um, whether it's 20, I've heard 20, 21, 23, or 19% of, of businesses are sold. Whatever it is, it's really low. Most family businesses 
uh, most business founders die at their desk, metaphorically. Mm -hmm. uh, thank goodness. Uh, <laughs> they just never <laughs> leave the building. They never leave the building, and so they die. And then we all know where the shares transition. They transition to a surviving spouse. And then what's that look like on Monday? Like, does that surviving spouse have operational knowledge? Do they know the lenders, customers? Do the, do the employees bolt for the door because they're freaking out because the spouse has never been in the building before? I mean, what are we doing here? I, and I, without being overly critical of the accounting and legal profession, and I have been in the past, although they continue to buy books and hire me, um, the irony of, of the success is that that's what's occurring. <laughs> well, well, I think you know where I'm going with this. Hey, I think listen, I do. Chris, if, if you're the accountant, you're the lawyer, and, and the business, the family business that you've been doing the audit, the $40,000, $50,000 audit every year for, uh, suddenly gets sold. What happens to the file? It's done. It's done. It's highly unlikely that the buyer is going to be a, be a client as well. So we have business owners in this country turning to the most trusted advisors. In this country, it's accountants first, lawyers second. In the U.S., interesting enough, it's attorneys first and accountants second. But regardless, they're turning to those two allied professions and on the subject of business succession planning. And they say, hey, Bill, hey, Mary, I need help with my succession plan. What do you recommend? And then the accountant goes, well, holy smokes, that just sounds like a tax question. You should do an estate freeze. I mean, why would you ever sell this beautiful business? It's returning 18% return on invested capital. It's been your best investment ever. I mean, way better than your mutual fund. So, boy, you, and you've got two great kids who went to university. I mean, I know one's a dentist and you're running a plastics company, but, uh, <laughs> but you've got two great kids. You should do an estate freeze and you should get those kids in the business and continue your legacy. Like, I wish I had a dollar for every time that that conversation is taking place today, somewhere in this country, some business owner being sold on the idea that business succession planning is purely a tax issue. And it drives me to distraction. It Where drives should me they start, Tom? Because I agree. I mean, I think that's true. And, and I feel that that... I feel that people, when they're doing their business succession planning, it was at least my experience that there's fear, there's some nerves about moving into that conversation. And an estate freeze is a fairly tidy tactic. Uh, and I think people stop there and feel it's done. That's over. Uh, I've, I've done something. They wash their hands of it and, and they don't have to do anything more. And so they stop. Right, right. They think that they've answered the question, but of course we, we all know that, that estate freeze is a form of gifting. They're transitioning shares. They may not be voting shares. The kids are gonna get the growth. Mom and dad are gonna retain those voting shares to the day that they die. And, and here's the problem. Chris, no one's dying at 65. Not a lot. Not we anymore. Know that those males especially, that demographic of males at 72, they pushed out that, that cohort has extended more years to their lives than any other cohort. And business owners are living longer than ever and they're retaining control of those business. And the kids aren't 40, the kids aren't even in their 50s, they're in their 60s, and they're not looking, they're not just looking for clarity on when they can get the voting shares like right away. They just want, they just want permission from their 94-year-old mother or father to retire. <laughs> like, 
It's ridiculous. It's right. not working. So what, what every family's business is trying to do with the 12 questions in the book is yep. at a much earlier stage in the founder's ownership, trying to explore whether or not there's family members who may be working in the business, maybe outside the business, but whether or not they want to risk their capital to buy that business. And remarkably, although not shockingly, uh, very few kids like their parents' business enough to do so. So it's, lead, it's just leading more businesses to be sold when they actually have value, as opposed to when someone's died and when competitors are swarming that business and gonna pick it off for pennies on the dollar while everyone's grieving. Like we, that movie has gotta end. I gotta believe, Tom, that if you, view, if you view a family business as a form of risk capital, that probably changes how you organize the business and build the business over time as well. It probably puts it into a, uh, a more scalable category. It, it's not as a lifestyle business. And that changes the whole dynamic of the capital structure and the reinvestment structure of the business over time, is, or, or the reinvestment of uh, retained earnings uh, uh, into the business, uh, probably a lot less dividending. You know, it's kept in, and if this is a good investment, let's continue to invest here. Yeah, absolutely. And so you can see how that becomes habitual. And hey, I know what I'm talking about. I do it myself. I watch my father do it. I watch my grandfather do it. I mean, that, it, is the, it is a well-worn path to creating significant wealth, right? Having right. an operating business, profit, pump it back in, fund your own receivables, fund your own capital expansions, fund it, fund it, fund it, be your own banker. And why do we do that? Because we're successful at it. We actually, they're, and they're super fun businesses to run. We used to invite our bankers in and slap them around. We used to interview them and send them packing. It was like, it was like duck hunting. It was so much fun because we had like $1 of retained earnings for every $2 of, of sales. Like we were completely under leveraged balance sheet because we did that reinvestment of profits year after year after year after year after year after year. 30 years. I was, and it was fun and easy. But of course, what do you have then? What you actually are building is your own succession planning house of horror. Right. You actually, you tell me right now. I mean, we do this as entrepreneurs because we love one thing that is way more exciting and intoxicating than money. It's control. We love it. We love running businesses where no one's telling us what to do. Right. And so, and with that control, we think that we have absolute control and that we have absolute control of our destiny and control much more control over our returns on invested capital. Now, we are coming out of this pandemic, and I can assure you that if you had 99% of the voting shares and absolute definitive control of your, oh, I don't know, hotel, that there was nothing you could have done to repair your balance sheet uh, in the last two months, six months. I don't know when this is going to change for the travel industry, but boy, there are going to be a lot of people learning what I'm talking about the hard way business owners who have no time to repair, they're just old, they're old and they're ex- they're traumatized now and they're tired. And I don't know if they've got enough gas in, in the tank to, you know, lean into the business and, and fix it because it's not going to be a six month fix. Uh, 
how long do you, when you're working with or speaking to people and they come up to you afterwards and ask you, you know, uh, and you started this in 2009. So that, that was probably, and that was some good timing. I think, I think this is going to be worse, but uh, uh, how did you, you know, what did you say to them? Uh, if there were some people who said, I, I, I think I, I have that mindset now. Um, and, and you, and you're telling them it's going to take more than six months. What's the timeline they should be looking at to, to get going on? I mean, there's no time like the present, but how long does it, building this kind of communication and, and, uh, uh, no secrets inside the family take? Well, I think to answer the first part of the question, I would say, if you're listening to this podcast and it's in the morning, I would say you might want to start, uh, in the afternoon. Where would you have them start, Tom? I, and I agree. <laughs> I mean, without being self-serving, um, I, I would read the book. Every Family's Business is a very short read. And, and for $24.95, I, I mean, I, I joke, there's a couple of entrepreneurs that, that I know who lost hundreds of millions of dollars. And I keep on, I, I told one of them, I said, you know, if you had spent $24.95, I'm pretty sure I could have saved you a couple of billion dollars. I mean, I believe it. I believe what I just said. I watched a significant Canadian company gift shares to the next generation and promptly blow it up. And I'm thinking, seriously, for $24.95, if you'd taken a, two hours to read this book, you would have sat down with your next gen children, who are lovely people, by the way, and actually smarter than the, their, their father who blew up the business. If they had gone through the 12 questions, they would have found out that the kids didn't want it. They didn't want it. Right. But how do you say no to a free business worth a couple of hundred million dollars? The gifting of shares and estate freezes, they are economic incentives. They, they, they lure people to make decisions and hang around family businesses for all the wrong reasons. And the 12 questions reveal that. Or they reveal that you actually do have an ex-gen who loves that business, is super talented, have their own ideas, and actually want it, and actually are smart enough to work with an outside private equity firm to raise money or whatever. Like they're, they're just creative, and they've got moxie, and they want it. They want it more than maybe a, maybe more than a sibling, and they get it. And they love the questions. I mean, because they're going to get a business that, that they own. That they're, going to, that they're going to have the permission to change and alter and pivot and not have to deal with their brothers and sisters, right? Like they can do this and get this transition in place while their parents are alive. Like, why and, wouldn't we want that? And, and, and you talked about absolute control. There's a lot of decision-making biases uh, that we know become more difficult over time. I mean, there's, a, there's one particular one called the endowment effect where we tend to value something much more than others do because we own it. Uh, it, we possess it. And I would tend to believe, and maybe this has been your experience, maybe you can comment on that, that as you get older, it's harder and harder to, to give it away. So this is something that requires process from an earlier age, an integrated intergenerational, uh, uh, if it's going to be an intergenerational sale, uh, process from an early age because our natural biases and fears get worse as we get older. They become more profound and are more likely to get in the way of 
sort of an open, uh, a, a more uh, open spirited approach to capital uh, transfer that you were discussing earlier. I, I totally agree. And I think, um, I think as we get older, first of all, one in three Canadians over the age of 65 are starting to present some, some symptoms, early signs of dementia. So first of all, just in practical terms, the longer we keep, the founders keep their businesses and, and ignore this subject, the likelihood that the best quality decisions are going to be made slip away, uh, sometimes quickly, sometimes very slowly. Uh, I, I would also add that there's another thing takes place, and it's called inflationitis. And this is where, <laughs> this is where someone in their 90s, uh, when they're contemplating changes to their will and their estate plan, often say, you know, I am, I'm going to leave $100,000 to the local hospital to build a new wing, right? It's like, well, right. that's, that's not going to do it. So I, a lot of people really lose real, um, I think, a sense of value. They, just, they, they often think their business is worth more or what it is worth doesn't mean what it think they think it means. Or they, they, just get, they just get lost in the world of numbers. And I'm, it's, man, I've seen this. This, that's, this is a big problem with dementia right now. And people don't know where to start and advisors get frozen around this subject. No one really feels like they can push hard enough. I mean, how do you introduce that subject? Um, but we're going to have to figure it out because there's, there's, there's trillions of dollars of value wrapped up in these operating businesses. And if, and if someone isn't more forceful, and I'll come back to the accountants and lawyers not being, then who are we left with? Who are we left with to really urge uh, these plans to be crafted and these family meetings to be had and the transparency and the details, the, you know, the granular stuff of, of business succession planning? Who's going to drive that stuff? Because um, we know it's not, ha it's not being done. 12 and a half million Canadian adults, half of all adults in Canada don't have a will, including half of all business owners. Why like not? It's, it's Why a, do you think that is, Tom? Well, I don't, know, I don't know if you know this, Chris, but if you write a will, and certainly if you sign one and then like, read it and touch it and hold it, you'll immediately die. <laughs> As if it's uh, confirming the prophecy of some oh, sort. No, no question. Just, it happens almost immediately. <laughs> I, that, I mean, superstition is one part of it. The other part of it is, I mean, some of the biggest estate planning disasters are, are among the wealthiest people because of, they've got more stuff. They've got more stuff, more assets, more asset classes, more complexity. So super easy just to say, you know what, next year, next year when we get through blah, 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 we'll sit down and do this. Next year, next year, next year. Right. And next uh, year never comes. Uh, it, at least the, uh, the, the best intentions are never, are never yeah. uh, uh, completed. Um, and and the, the risk with that, and I'm sure you've seen this, is that next year you're a year older and your, your faculties are much more declined. And it's possible that through sheer passage of time, your ability to ever execute on any of this planning is completely dissipated because you do become, you do have full-on dementia and you lose your legal capacity to even do a new will or, or to even execute uh, documents required for an estate freeze or if you haven't done your powers of attorney for property or personal care here in Ontario, you lose that ability to do all of that. Yep, 
Yep. I mean, you're a lawyer. You'll, uh, you'll know, you'll, if you haven't yourself, you will know colleagues, many colleagues who were called to do a bedside will in a hospital. Oh, yeah. this, is, this is the old dance, the old routine where, you know, mom or dad goes into the hospital. They, they own a business. The kids are freaking out. There's been no discussion. No one would ever broach the subject of, of a will. So, but, you know, someone finally says he doesn't have one. So then the lawyer gets called. They rush into the hospital. They're at the bedside. They're, you know, you got, you know, the business owner popping in and out of consciousness. You've got the lawyer trying to piece together, you know, what assets are they going to divide? How are they going to divide? And, you know, in those moments when someone isn't thinking clearly, it's just the, like the worst place to be doing this. You got the kids out in the hallway popping their head in, trying to figure out who's getting what maybe doing a little bit of lobbying in the uh, in the in the hallway as well like it's just nonsense it's just so cavalier and irresponsible to leave other people with your mess to clean up right and that's what happens you often get these impetuous bedside bedside wills and you've got you've got the business going to the maybe the the one daughter in the business and the son is outside the business and meanwhile the son outside the business gets all the cash and she looks like the winner but his is tax free and she's loaded and there's no insurance. Right. There's no insurance for the, for the capital gains that are triggered on last to survive, like just, and then the two kids lawyer up and, and then here we go again. Oh, because someone didn't have, I don't know, an hour, three hours to do a proper will or have three hours a year set aside for a proper family meeting with their, with their advisors present with open, honest, transparent discussions about what is in the will. And maybe here's an even better uh, uh, idea. How about asking your kids, what do you think I should do in my will? How, how, what are your thoughts on how I should divide my assets? Let's have a full, open, transparent conversation around that little, little question. What's the I mean, benefit to that, Tom? Well, the, the benefit is, Everyone, the, the biggest benefit of a family meeting, and I'm, I've been called in to be a speaking resource in family meetings lots of times, and there are no two family meetings the same, but except for one thing. The beautiful part of a family meeting is everyone hears the same thing at the same time. So when mom and dad do die, and Larry, the eldest son, goes, yeah, so um, I know it's not in the will, but uh, mom and dad really wanted me to have the vote. <laughs> right <laughs> and the other kids are like hey larry you're an idiot we were all in the family meeting we all heard we all heard the same thing <laughs> you're not getting the boat the boat is one of those assets that our executor is going to sell and we're going to divide the cash so nice try dude <laughs> well it certainly becomes a distant early warning signal like you you know as a family where where the storm clouds are going to be and that may give you the opportunity well, it at least gives you the, the benefit of time to, uh, to, to, to deal with what might just be a misunderstanding, a perceptual misunderstanding, or maybe it has to be a little bit more extreme and, and you get into some defensive planning. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we both know that in the absence of, of family meetings and the disclosure of the contents of wills, and, and before that, viewing the, the will, the power of attorney, the healthcare directive, as a collaborative document that everyone writes together, right? No surprises, but actually better content in those documents because they're really, they're being fleshed out in collaboration with the people who are impacted, right? I have a copy of my parents' healthcare directive. I know exactly what they want. I know exactly what language to listen for when a doctor is presenting some kind of opinion on their health. I know exactly, what a great non-financial gift to give to me. 
Yes. Like, do you see? Do you see? What is what the benefit, Tom? Describe that for me. Well, the benefit, I think I agree with you. I, I think that's a tremendous gift your parents gave you. And and how would you describe that benefit? Well, I you know if I hear the words vegetative state, uh, vegetative state, or uh, ir irreversible brain damage. Like there's very, very specific language that we reviewed in great detail. I know exactly what to do. Okay, what a great gift. Now, the opposite of that is, imagine someone who doesn't have that document, they're presented with that, that opinion from a doctor, and then they're left in the hallway with their brothers and sisters debating to plug or unplug. Now you tell me what family is gonna get that decision right. You tell me what family is going to honestly believe that they got the right second or the right minute or the right hour, or the right day. Someone is gonna feel like they move too slow or too quickly. And that is what we're leaving our families. I mean, the great gifts of these family meetings when we open these documents up and build them together is that we, we really give great financial and non-financial gifts. And, and then we take away the possibility of someone who does feel aggrieved from projecting their dissonance on the living. Right? That's often what happens in the absence of a family meeting. Someone who is aggrieved, who thinks someone got, got more, they can, they can direct their anger, ambivalence towards the right person. And that person would be in the ground. In many cases, people who get more, they haven't asked for it. That, that dissonance is projected on them because they're perceived to have lobbied for it. But when a family meeting strips away that nonsense and brings those conversations into full technicolor, real time, we can see who the decision makers are. And I just think those are great gifts to give families. And I really think it's at the heart of great dynastic wealth. I think if you really dive into the biographies of the great wealth creators, that they have done that. They've invested in process, they've invested in facilitation, they've invested in resources, they are, they're readers, they're thinkers, and they actually, they actually build families that work super, super well when they're not here. Isn't that really what estate planning is all about? Wait, it's, that's a it's long the, way. That's a long way away from an estate freeze designed just to save tax. Because you've been at presentations where uh, uh, estate planning is often, say, the sort of the broad uh, topic of of the conversation. You might be part of a panel, and the first thing that goes up on the PowerPoint to define estate planning is it's a will, it's life insurance, it's powers of attorney, tax planning. Uh, you know, RSPs, things like that. And always absent from that list of elements of, a, of an effective estate plan is, as you've talked about, uh, uh, purposeful storytelling, uh, communication with an intentionality to it as far as the plan goes. All of that is missing. I, I very rarely see it. And I think what I'm hearing from you is that you would advocate for that. It should be on the list. It should be at the top of the list, maybe. Oh, it should be absolutely at the top of the list. Absolutely at the top of the list. You know, silence, my favorite line in every family's business, and to this day, I, 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 I don't know where it came from, but it's as follows. Silence is the great destroyer of family businesses. It's not families that talk. It's families that wrap the transition of a family business in total secrecy. Why don't more people open up and 
what is it that contributes to that? And maybe the B part of that question, why, like, why is it so secretive? I'll, I'll tell you why. You're the controlling shareholder. You've worked very hard to build something. You know you've beaten the odds. You've built a business with employees and recurring revenue. And it's, it's really amazing. And it is. And I'm not trying to diminish that work, but you've got control. Congratulations. Now, I come along and write a book and says, the greatest act of exercising control is actually voluntarily relinquishing it precisely at the moment when no one can make you do that. That is wisdom. That is control. Do you know, how, that is rare, but that's what the great families do. They understand, and here's the big, big, I think maybe contrarian idea in my sequel, Willing Wisdom, is that <laughs> business owners have always thought that estate planning is about answering the question, who gets my stuff when I'm dead? And then, so we shouldn't be all that shocked that half of business owners don't have a will, 12 and a half million Canadians. And I come along and say, oh, no, 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 no. Estate planning, dude, that's very much about the living. It's very much, see, when you go in for a will, you and I both know, you come out with two bonus documents. <laughs> One's a power of attorney. That's right. very much about the living. That says, hey, business owner, farmer who bumps her head on the tractor, unconscious, tell me, in the absence of the power of attorney, tell me who on the farm is going to write checks and keep the farming operation going while you are unconscious for 48 hours. Good news, you're going to pop out of whatever your, you know, your, your unconscious state. But tell me, who's going to run your business? Who's going to act in your financial interest as if they were you? And then that's th that third document, that bonus document, is that healthcare directive. And the big contrarian idea in Willie Wisdom is, is this. When we keep our wills and our, and our gifts, our beneficiaries in the dark, when we wrap our estate plans in secret, I think it actually detracts and removes something from the quality and quantity of late in life care that we hope to receive from who, Chris? Who? Our dentist? <laughs> Our Uber driver? <laughs> I have a good dentist, but uh, I'm not sure I want to uh, impair the remaining enjoyment of her life with that obligation. Yeah, that, yeah, not, not going to be changing your diapers, not going to be driving you to your medical appointments. Listen, it no. is family who bears the weight of that late in life care. And I, we, listen, we've all seen it. We've all seen how exhausting it is for someone in their 60s or 70s who have got, they're like the meat in, a, in an intergenerational sandwich. They're getting it from both ends. They're taking care of their, their kids <laughs> who are still struggling in their 20s and 30s. And then they've got, they've got aging parents that aren't going to languish for one year or three years, but for like 15 years that they're going to be lying down, needing care, someone scheduling their care, food, medication. Like it, it's exhausting. And and so, and there's no, there's no conversation around the, their, their parents' estate plan. They don't know if they have enough money to fund what is going to be required for their care. So I come along and say, listen, estate planning is very much about the living. The more that you share 
your plans and build your plans collaboratively with the people collaboratively with the people who are going to be impacted by your gifts. I just think that that you're using your surplus capital to actually invest in relationships, build trust and mutual respect. And I think that's going to show up in your, in your care when you need it the most. I really like that, that estate planning is about the living, because I think that if people view it that way, um, they, it, it really changes the perspective, as you've said, on the level of investment that they need to make in that. And I think that it gives it the opportunity to not be estate planning, that is to say, to not be an event, but to be a process. And, and I know in my own book, I talked about that. One of the reasons it's called an opus is because I, is, is that I, I feel estate planning is a process that as soon as you're old enough to, to, to do a will, it, it's somewhat arbitrarily as a starting point, you need to start thinking about that and that there should be a conversation about that and it ends when your life ends. And, and that, that, that is your obligation. I think I share that with you. That's your obligation, that's your responsibility and it is irresponsible to those that you love to fail to do that. And that um, you, you need to have that communication all the way along. How do we get people to that, Tom? How, I, I think that's a core, uh, and it's very contrarian. It ought to be intuitive, but it's very contrarian that estate planning is about the living. How do we get people there? And this is a business succession topic too, because a lot of times business succession is left to a will, which I think is a, is a terrible place really for it to be, um, because you're not around anymore to explain things if you haven't done this. What steps can, can you suggest? Uh, you know, obviously buying your book, and I would agree with that, but where's the, where's the starting point for that? How do we get that, that message from, it, this is a, an event, I hate estate planning, it's about my will, to this is uh, uh, something for the living, this is a process that I need to be starting on today. Well, you know, I, I, think, I think what my book is doing, and I know what I do in live events, because I know where I fit in the estate planning world. Um, like, I'm the blunt instrument. I am not the surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a change agent. You're, you're I, an agent of change. I, I am, and that's why I don't consult, because I would be conflicted. I'm not conflicted. I'm really clear, and I, and I don't diminish the work that people have to do with what I'm suggesting. In fact, I think it's, it's much easier to come up with these ideas and leave them with practitioners. I mean, it is really hard, but it is made vastly easier when I'm speaking to their clients, when I'm, whether that's a live event or a webinar, I'm actually kind of creating the conditions, the hard stuff, plowing through, delivering the message for the first time. And then the advisor can usually pick up and say, so what did you think about that crazy guy? You see, like they, I create the space for the conversation to continue. I'm just starting difficult conversations. And I think really in the absence of a provocateur, it's very hard to do that. It's very, very hard for an advisor to say, listen, you need to sell this business. Or you have two kids that, listen, they are lovely people, but I can tell you, they, they are not up to the job of running this business. Or you have two kids and one is up to the business of running this business. Why are you constantly talking about gifting an equal number of shares and leaving them in 50-50 limbo land? Like, 
what are you doing? Like, I can do that because seriously, when I speak, I li often leave out the back door. <laughs> With a security escort. Oh, yeah. oh, lots of security. Like, so, so, but I understand, like, I understand that. I understand that that's where I fit and I know it's an important role. I'm not running for office and I know it's an important role. I know it's a valued role. And I often, some of the, some of the greatest moments in my speaking career when people have come up to me and said, ah, listen, I am mildly ticked off or angry. Um, Cause. And then they go, they, they don't know why. And they're like, I, I just want to thank you. I, I just have so much work to do. And I, and I'm, I'm probably confused, but holy smokes, uh, I, just, I just didn't know what I didn't know. And I just, I don't know, I just, it feels like, it's, to this day, it still feels like important work. Uh, and I know that the courts continue to be plugged full of families fighting. I, I really feel like my work will never be done. And so part of what I'm trying to do is find emissaries, people who will continue my work after I'm left the planet and people who will continue to take the message forward that, that secrets and money and family relationships, I mean, it's a cocktail, it's explosive and there's a better way. And for business owners, sometimes the best way to understand that is by reminding them, and they understand this, that they made money by taking risks. And I come along and say, listen, I'm imploring you to take one more risk with your most valuable asset. And by the way, it's not your business. It's with your real legacy. It's your family. Take one more risk. Have one more conversation with them that feels dangerous and explosive. Trust it. Resource it with talented people who can help you through this, this difficult, risky conversation. And when you do, guess what happens? When we take risks, we create the opportunity for immense rewards. And there can be nothing more rewarding than watching a business owner answer the most vexing question of their life, which is, where will my business go? How will it transition? How will my family deal with this? When you see a family resolve that issue, my goodness, is it wonderful. It's amazing. And, and taking risk creates the opportunity for failure as well, which in and of itself is a valuable learning, uh, learning opportunity. I've often thought that entrepreneurs, it's often said that entrepreneurs, that there's risk and there's risk and the, the risk on for them is, is very much a calibrated risk. They're very good at, you know, they don't take big flyers on things. They, because they understand what it, how hard it was to create and how important it is to, to deploy it uh, responsibly. Um, but that willingness to take risk creates knock-on positive effects in the next generation of the family as well. I'm yeah. sure you've seen that. Yeah, I think that becomes part of the family culture. That's, I mean, that's what I grew up watching. And that family culture allows what you described as creative destruction to you know a positive entropy to to really a controlled explosion uh to occur successfully um what do you mean by that when you just when you say creative destruction what well i think the ultimate act of creative destruction i mean let's go right back to schumpeter who who introduced that concept into mainstream economic thinking in the 1940s right so you know 
what he was, he was looking at American firms. He was an Austrian, a, a Jewish Austrian economist who fled Nazi Germany. He lands in, lands in Boston and uh, sets up, he's brilliant, uh, largely overshadowed by Keynes, but he's looking at American firms and he's looking at that list of the 100 largest firms in America in 1900. So 40 years later, there's a whole bunch of those firms that are gone, like they failed. And he's like, this does not make sense. How do big firms with competitive advantages, capital, management, uh, monopolies, market share, why do they fail? And, and then he trips over this brilliant idea and he says, what's happening is they're failing to practice creative destruction on themselves. They are allowing smaller, nimbler entrepreneurial firms to do it to them. And they wait too long and they dither and they then they're ultimately destroyed. So think about that concept in the, in the context of the modern corporation. Uh, you think of that, how difficult it is for a CEO to look at their most profitable product or service and say to their team, all right, guys, this, is, this product is generating 30% of our gross margin, um, uh, top line, bottom line, whatever, whatever metric. I want all of us to start actively thinking how we can destroy it and replace it with something better. <laughs> no one does that. <laughs> well, you know what they do? They go, listen, we should keep doing whatever got us here. Right. Whatever got us here, we should continue to do it. We should do it more. We should do it more and do it faster. And so that same kind of thinking infects the logic of family businesses, especially when someone is gifted the shares in the next generation. You go, oh my God, what, you know, we've always done it this way. We are a family steeped in tradition. It's all about continuity of ownership. And we are, we have done it this way. And we know that there is a, a devastating lack of creativity and innovation in family businesses because of the way that they're transitioned. When someone receives a free business, they often lack the authenticity and the permission to change it. I mean, I ask my audiences rhetorically whether or not they've inherited something. Someone invariably puts their hand up and says, yeah, I, I received a watch from my grandfather. And then I ask them, did you take it to a pawnbroker and sell it? Did you change the, 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 the strap on that watch? It's like, no, I, I cleaned it up. I put it away somewhere safe. Ditto for the family business that is transition. When we gift businesses to the next generation, that next generation can't kill the original product line. It's like they don't feel, it feels like they're disavowing the family legacy. And it's such nonsense. If you're a hired gun, you don't have that same kind of luggage, that same kind of, you're not weighed down by that same kind of logic and nonsense. You get on with the business of changing the business, innovating it, and, drive, and driving growth. It's just a very, it's a very difficult idea for, for family business owners, especially to master this idea that it's their job to kill their business in order for their family to survive. And it's interesting you say that because uh, I recall it was, I believe it was Polaroid actually invented the digital camera and uh, didn't, they, they, instead of viewing it as an opportunity to, to entirely change their business model, uh, they kind of kept it on the shelf and didn't let it leak out. And then, of course, we all know what happened 
Polaroids. I mean, my children have Polaroids, but it's it's uh, Polaroid-like cameras, but it's more of a uh, um, you know more of an oddity than an, something they use their digital cameras for everything. And and that reinvention, that willingness to reinvent and not stay attached to the past, it is going to lead to this permission to change the future. And I think that's absolutely um, a missing message when we're working with business families and when we're talking to business families. And I think there's a fear about that and about giving that permission because I think it tends to uh, reflect poorly, uh, no, no, maybe that's not the wording I'm looking for, but there's a fear that it will reflect poorly on the choices that the, the older uh, members of the family, say the G1, have made. And that just gets harder and harder to change over time. So if I'm hearing you right, your process, the idea you bring in, in uh, every family's business is to let's communicate about that so that those, those uh, barriers to effective decision-making are as much as we can taken away. We'll take those biases and those heuristics that we use, and instead of entrenching them, we will use process to peel them off, and that will allow us to uh, take on these sort of contrarian approaches to capital and capital replacement uh, to ensure our success for the long term. I mean, those are sweeping changes to a family's business decision-making. I, I think they are. And, and, you know, it's my 12 questions are Socratic. I, I mean, I, you can buy the book, you can read it. There's no answers in the book. The book's completely useless unless you're prepared to ask the 12 <laughs> question. Completely, it's completely useless, but I have a strong belief that the answer to it's whatever, the answer to whatever is bedeviling a business owner in their transition is the answer is in the room. The advisor doesn't have it. The answer to the question of how your business will transition, when it will transition, and who it will transition to is in the room. And the answer resides somewhere between the space, between the relationship between two people, father, son, father, daughter, daughter, mother, whatever. They need, they need to collaboratively answer that question and find clarity. It's not a tax issue. It's not a legal structure issue. It is a question that needs to be asked. And when it does, my goodness, when a family can work collaboratively on transition, transition in or outside the family, I don't care. These are amazing moments. These are amazing moments when the, when the founder says, look, I don't have the answer. I have the power and control, but I don't have the answer. I need your help. We need to do this collaboratively. We need to do it together. I need you. That call for help from a founder, that is a moment. And I have been in rooms where that moment is, it's unreal. There isn't a dry eye in a room full of adults when someone is asking for help. Thanks to Dr. Tom Deans for this week's episode. We will continue with Tom in the next episode of Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast, where Tom takes questions about the importance of having permission to take risks, how he created the purposeful order of questions in every family's business, the lessons every business owner needs to take away from the COVID-19 pandemic, and much, much more. Thank you for joining us this week.